Welcome to U of Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is poet Jerry Doran, associate professor of creative writing at the University of Oregon. Doran is author of three collections of poetry, Resin from 2005, which won the Walt Whitman Award, Sanderlings from 2011, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award in Poetry, and most recently, Epistle Osprey from 2019. Doran will give a reading at the University of Oregon on November 20th, 2019, as part of the Creative Writing Program's 2019-2020 reading series. Thank you, Jerry, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a poet. Uh, I came late to poetry. I had um, started an MA program in literature and found that my literature classes weren't what I wanted to be doing. What I wanted to be doing was writing. So I quit to be a novelist and wrote a poem and wrote another poem and thought, uh-oh, um, and started writing seriously and then went to, when I was about 30 to get my MFA. So um, I was quite late to get the start of things. But I'd been reading poetry for a long time and um, had loved it since childhood. So. Why, why is poetry important? Why should why is it important for people like you to be writing poetry? Um, I don't like the like me part of that. Um, uh, well, for people to be for, writing poetry. For, for <laughs> poets to be writing poetry. Um, I think it is a place where we can think in nuanced ways. Um, I'm less interesting as a thinker in prose. Um, I think some people can be magical in prose, but poems offer a way to be multiple to tease out things that are difficult. I think it is maybe the art form, the art form that for me can most take on the complexity and damage of the world. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a great place of nuance. And um, I like the way that a poem is itself and not just about its subject. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I have difficulty when people ask me what my poems are about mm -hmm. because the subject and the insight are usually quite different. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. so the latest collection is Epistle Osprey. Would you read the title poem in that volume for us? I'd be glad to. Epistle Osprey. Beyond the catch of sunlight on clustered rose hips is the way this letter began years ago before shifting to the shadows moving along the mason stonework. I sat at the garden's iron table, watching a magpie's two-tone flit in the hedgerow, and waited for, what? Some purifying figure from this element to catch in language, metaphysics turned perception, turned fire. How impractical it all was, each moment, and yet how worldly. Place names balanced on the tongue, pen with, pendine. Love was restored, but in the bygone sense of simple pleasure, common feeling, to get past the body's need or the heart's. I hadn't imagined the world could be enough. Now when people ask, I point to the osprey's nest above the trellis bridge, because it distracts that other strand we call the world, by which I mean now temporal, secular, the fray happening in human life, from the morning spilled coffee onto a neatly laundered skirt, to hospital days in their blur, medications, creams, forms, nurses, diagnoses, the priests severe in black, all slurried 
into equivalent, meaningless things, while the heart contends with death's leviathan fact. And it's false to say the orange-red shivering leaves offer recompense, though looking out on them calms my trembling. Perhaps that is the lesson in love. So is this osprey, disregarding the humans below, though surely alert to us. She hungers, feeds, then hurtles to her high-thistled home. Thank you. It's a beautiful poem. Thank you. It was the last uh, to go in the book. Uh, the book was finished and accepted, and uh, this came in um, uh, after my sister passed away. So. The beginnings of the poem uh, was quite old. I wrote it in Cornwall in 2011. Hmm. And it was uh, a letter to a friend who was also in Cornwall and thinking about being in that place. Um, and then I took it up again after she passed. And I was trying to find ways into poems um, and ways to, to grieve, I suppose, in language mm -hmm. as well as in life. Um, and as with all poems, things come from all over the place. Uh, the osprey is both here and on Fisher's Island, New York. Um, mm. I'm thinking of two different osprey, and mm. uh, they're both in. Um, but the, that moment of um, sort of trying to understand how we can feel any consolation and whether or not the world can, the natural world can bring that to us, um, it can't, but it might be the best place to try. I think is what I came to. So, how do you understand the relationship of the title, title, Epistle uh, Osprey, and the title poem to the volume as a whole? Because it's also the title of the volume. It is. Um, I tend to, I tend to title my books after a poem, um, usually, uh, but I want to find something that is broad enough and open enough to kind of speak to what's happening, not literally, but elusively. Um, and it seemed to me that the question of the natural world and the question of whether it is detached from us and kind of what that relationship is, what we want from it and, and what, what that relation is given back to us um, was one piece of it, but also epistle. I, I often call poems letters that aren't really letters, but they seem to me um, in action to be like a letter. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it kind of felt like it could hold um, hold the other poems. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So you've just talked about how the volume's title and this poem suggests that the volume is a kind of letter or epistle, but as you've also made clear in talking about this specific poem, the volume is also elegiac at times. Um, can you say a little bit about the role of elegy in the volume? Uh. Uh, maybe it's more the role of elegy in life. I, I don't think I write formal elegies. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not working in that tradition or um, with our understanding of that. Um, but I do think one of the things that in the, when I was saying that poetry can contend with the, the things that are difficult to us, um, poetry is maybe a place that's commensurate with grief and loss. Those um, losses of such magnitude we can't believe we find language for, but poems give a shape to it, maybe. Um, and in the course of the last 15 years, there's been a lot of death. So, 
Um, another poem I think that speaks very much to what you've just been talking about is the poem, Not the Stigmata. Yeah. Would you read that one for us? Oh, I'd love to, thank you. Mm. Not the Stigmata. For on the palm, no evidence remained. Shoe black rubbed across the fat padding of the thumb. From the hoe, slivers of worn wood worked in. These, then the saw blade one day, and pink coloring the fresh sawdust. In a manner kind, for what might have been the hand itself was just one finger, a small price, not sign so much as an early reclamation. This I shall take back one day. Blythe child, did you not see in your father's wounded hand some flickering of what could be mistaken and what taken? For red bloomed in his left hand, chaliced in his right, a paint rag sopping blood. Of faith you saw no mark, just flesh scattered in the shavings. Could this be reconstructed into a legend or devotion? Not a moment's wayward thought, but something constant consecrated. For I shall never leave you was less hearsay than the solemn vow proclaimed by blood. In your hand, child, the workman's hand, one finger shorn, soft now upon the sheet, his untouched palm dying in your own. Uh, you spoke about poetry being commensurate to, to these kinds of, to grief, to death, to um, loss. Say, can you tell us, do, is there anything you want to tell us about that poem? Um. Yes, <laughs> let me think of what it is. Um, my father was a carpenter, so that moment, um, that that fact and the moment of the um, finger run through a saw blade are in fact true and truly autobiographical. Um, but I'm not, I'm not so interested in th those moments, except sort of how they how they make us think and understand the world. Um, and my father was was a Catholic fervent in the way that makes people think he was a convert to mm. the religion. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so often when I think of him, I think of faith in that really profound way that is mostly not uh, true for me. Mm -hmm. um, but also uh, the image of sitting at his bedside as he's dying and holding his hand, which had one short finger, um, and kind of what that, what that was. Um, but you know, as I said, every poem comes from multiple places. I shouldn't tell on it, uh, <laughs> tell this, but uh, a student said to me, you can't begin a stanza or a line with four. It sounds too pretentious, so <laughs> I had to go try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's an excellent story. <laughs> that's an excellent story. So, um, yeah, I like to prove people wrong um, and prove myself wrong, too. So you mentioned that Poetry comes from many places, mm -hmm. and you've also, in passing, s uh, alluded to the poetic tradition. And I know that you're a poet deeply steeped in the tradition. Epistle Osprey includes epigraphs and allusions to a, a, a wide range of canonical poets, including John Ashbery, Ezra Pound, Jorge Luis uh, Borges, and Elizabeth Bishop. Why is it important for you as a poet to be engaged with the tradition? Um, I think of poetry as a long conversation and that 
that sort of reaching back or talking back to predecessors has always been something that um, intrigued me. It's also where I find kinship, I mm -hmm. think, in a lot of ways, that um, I'm interested in those connections with poets across time so that the time doesn't matter, the, the uh, circumstances don't matter, but something being said does. And that gives me a lot of faith in the, in the long arc of human something progress or uh, development that we, that we find our humanity in every age and can try to connect with that. Um, it's also a way to honor those poets who came before. Um, and also to kind of put, put my mind, I think a lot of the times the illusions are a little more glancing. I don't kind of write within somebody's poem, mm -hmm. but, um, but something will be sparked and maybe go in a different direction. Um, and, uh, and Bishop is just, you know, I think everyone of my generation would say Bishop is an important influence. I think she's um, kind of beautifully and quietly pervasive mm -hmm. for us. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope. <laughs> so the way you've described this sort of glancing uh, relationship and uh, you've now spoken about Bishop, would you read No Edge, No Falling? Yeah, yeah I thought you might ask. Um, no Edge, No Falling. Here, not waterfalls. Scrubby plats of gorse and heather. A few stray dabs of yellow torn by stinging winds. We've come across rutted track and granite stiles across along the apertures of fields to stare at some inexplicable old stonework. Nineteen huddled rocks, nineteen obelisks, a ring of stones in ancient reformation. Stark and pricked, wayward, every footpath this late autumn leads to stonework ruins draped by fog ghosts, the lanky beauties rising across the heath not oaks, but chimney stacks, hearthless and chill. If hungering for anything, we're hungering for fire, a burst of red to break the endless heath, a bonfire to warm these cryptic stones. But listen, in the wind there is a voice. It isn't only hardship that I offer. Not only, but ocean-dusted blue, which crests against striated crops of granite, a rocky, disbelieving headland. And there, beyond, a horizon line so far, so smudged, there is no edge or falling. Um, I should say that to stare at some inexplicable old stonework is Bishop's line. Um, it's quoted here. Uh, and the poem sort of takes after questions of travel. I think in the back, uh, in the notes, I say it takes up the questions, because that's more how I feel it, that here I am once again in Cornwall, um, walking to a stone circle, an old stone circle, and uh, kind of thinking of her. The, you wouldn't know it. It's nowhere here. And I guess this is partly what I mean by glancing, is the way that we kind of move through ideas. Um, Bishop's poem ends with never wide and never free, and no edge, no falling is something in that repetition, that echo, was a place for me to start thinking about this. I also very much like the joke at the end that, the, you know, maybe the world still is flat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we know it's not, but the, the speaker's for the moment going to hold that potential. Um, but again, I'd gone to Cornwall to study the tin mines and the, the ruins of the tin mines that are everywhere in uh, Cornwall, um, the social history of the miners, and 
what do we make of a landscape that has these ancient stones and then the brickwork of the chimneys from the last you know 200 years of um, uh, the tin mines uh, well you've spoken just then in very specific terms about um, a question of travel for you yeah. um, it's clear I think to anyone who knows your poetry that travel is a a crucial part of your practice. You want to say a little bit about how you, why that's important to you as a poet? Yeah. Um, I did very little traveling when I was young. I mean, I did spend a year abroad, but when I was about 40, I had the Amy Lowell, which was a year, and the condition of the award is that you spend a year outside of North America. So mm -hmm. it was the first time that I really got to live elsewhere and spend time elsewhere. And um, I think poetry is always a, a it, it's a, a way of trying to find the deeper connections by way of displacement. And um, what I've learned over time is that something frees up for me when I travel. Um, certainly sense of obligation and kind of the dailiness of our dutiful task lives when we're at home doing things like the dishes. Um, but also that I feel more at home when I'm afoot than I'm when I'm at home. Um, I've always struggled with that notion of dwelling in place and, and love to do so and bought a house and, and mean to be in a place and know my, know my environment and my bioregion and live in my landscape and community. But I feel more myself when I am elsewhere. Hmm. So, and it, that calls up the poem somehow. Hmm. So the poems in the volume are written in a variety of different forms. Can you say a bit about how you approach form in your work? Yeah, um, more and more organically uh, from book to book. I think I cared more about whether a poem was in tercets or, or how did it live in its skin in the early books. And I think each, each book has gotten, with each book I've gotten more interested in finding kind of the, the true right home for each poem its shapeliness, its tone, its sound, and all of those things. So form for me is a little more responsive. I hope it's more responsive. Um, certain things certainly seem to beg for certain kinds of poems, and I'd write a sonnet differently than I would write a discursive, um, more narrative poem. Mm -hmm. But I've been interested in kind of moving away from a, a kind of um, containment or constraint. I, that was very useful to me in my earlier poems, mm -hmm. but I find now I want to, the poems are a little more me meditative. Um, I say this, lots of them are seven or eight lines long, mm -hmm. sometimes they're very brief uh, meditations, but um, yeah, and I do, I do like music. I'm not, a, I'm not a metrist by any sense and don't work with a formally metrical line much of the time, but I love the, res the resources of those sounds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I, think I do tap back to them. Very interesting. Um, would you mind reading the last poem in the volume, Black Mama? I'd love to, thank you. Black Marble. Constancy. Tonight the peerless stars atone for countless pinched and starless nights. We ride currents of royal blue on our continental crust, safe as houses, safe in houses that perch on plains and hillsides, or grip the sand and face the coastal tide like seabirds fierce into the gale. This hold, the lithic earth below our feet, grounds and keeps us. 
Metamorphic rock spans down, hardly fragile. Yet when sleep declines to come, I recall the earth we've known these 40 years, a waif transformed in space, and lonelier than Lucifer mid-fall, and how the frosted breath of clouds obscured bronze fleets of land so thin they seemed the barest scraps of hide, or something more like wafers of flint and splintered rock, our tiny rafts, we their castaways. Pole star, we say, meaning one who guides us, and we navigate by stars, wish upon them, name constellations after gods and pouty boys, and by dint of that know ourselves substantial. But this laptop's glowing portal, companion in my wakeful nights, spins me from the photographed blue marble to these night versions, each a seeming vision of the stars, moon-arced by a protective curve of light. They are not stars, but city lights, whispered myths, human comedies winking in the black, disobedience, splendid love affairs, heroics, all ephemeral, and that, and all our quest, is mirrored back. Beautiful poem. Thank you. Um, what would you like to tell us about that one? Well, it, it talks back to um, a poem earlier in the book, Blue Marble, which is about that beautiful photograph of Earth from space that we got uh, with Apollo 17, I think it was, in the 70s. Um, and uh, for a long time, it's the title poem of the book, Blue Marble. That was the mm, title of the manuscript for ages. Interesting. Um, and I was never quite happy with the poem. And so I finally decided to try to rewrite the images I didn't like, and instead I wrote a different poem. <laughs> um, but Black Marble, there's, NASA has the photographs of um, Blue Marble up on the website, and then there's a series of photographs taken at night that for all the world look like the night sky, but are in fact just these different patterns of lights because they're uh, looking back at Earth. And that sort of view of looking back at us and seeing ourselves fragile, I think, is important. Um, what we do is massively important to us and questing and so small. Um, and there's some, something that uh, is in Blue Marble that I think is maybe behind a lot of this book. Um, when they took the photograph, it was oriented in a way that uh, NASA was afraid we wouldn't recognize our Earth, and so they had to turn the photograph for us to recognize ourselves. Mm. And I think. There's something really interesting in that. How well do we know our Earth? And um, what do we see out of habit, hmm. maybe? So, so um, one of the things that comes up for me in this conversation is imagining Jerry Doran in the classroom. So you are uh, not just a poet, but you are also a teacher of poetry. You. Can you tell us something about how you approach the, the task of teaching poetry? Oh, um, as expansively as I can, on which I fail every day, I'm sure. Um, I try to bring really beautiful, amazing poems in for us to talk about. Um, I try to be real as a poet, and what I mean by that is n not to talk about myself and what I'm doing, but to maybe say, it's flawed, it's passionate. Yesterday in my graduate workshop, we had a big argument, big old argument about aesthetics and poetics. And, hmm. um, and I find a kind of joy in that, that we can 
have this real conversation, even in a setting that I think is kind of unreal and mm -hmm. artificial and with times and room numbers and things like that. Um, but at all stages, I hope seeing them as potential artists and letting them see maybe one way that that can be. Um, and that means to try to approach life, the work at hand, their poems, the intellectual matter, and all of it. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. But the ambitions and who knows. And That's uh, what I would hope for. It's also clear from what you said earlier that uh, sometimes when you are teaching poetry, they are teaching you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a conversation, too. <laughs> I think. Yeah. And I get, I am fortunate to work with some very, very talented and bright young writers. So. Yes, we have quite a record at the University of Oregon in our yeah. poetry yeah. Uh, group for amazing poets. Yeah, yeah, it makes it a pleasure to teach. Um, can you tell us about your, what you're working on now? Yeah. Um, I think some of those meditative poems that I was talking about, I'm trying to find a way to do that, to be a little more discursive um, without being boring or writing essays. Um, I'm also writing, I started reading uh, Thomas Tranströmer and just thought, is it possible? Is it possible for me to get anything like that lightness and lift and th that sort of almost ephemeral but real world thing and I started writing this little and they're much tidier than any of his poems absolute three lines and then the space and three more lines um, but I can't stop I've written at least a <laughs> dozen of them and, and they're almost like little imagist poems they're very unlike anything I've done but they really are a quest to find you know and they're about death and all sorts of things so they're not light in that way but to find some way to hold the poems that feels a little shimmery, maybe. Huh. And I love work that does that. I, when I say that, I think of something like Heaney's, the 12-line uh, poems that end seeing things that are, seem to me some of the most profound poems I know, and yet like Gossamer. Mm. So, he has yeah. a gift for that. He does, <laughs> yeah. And I would love, I'd love to tap that, see if <laughs> any of that is in me somewhere. <laughs> so. um, we just have a minute left, Jerry, okay. so this will be my last question. You've just mentioned two uh, poets that you're currently engaged with. Um, anybody else you're reading now that you'd like to recommend to us? Um, well, I've just started re uh, reading um, Ricky Laurentiis's book, um, which title is going to escape me for the moment. Gosh, it'll come before the end of the sentence, I bet. Um, I'm reading Ilya Kaminsky's uh, Deaf Republic, um, which I think is interesting. We've all been waiting for. Mm. I've heard a few of the poems over the years, but I think a, a lot of us have been hoping for this book to come out for some time. He's an exquisite writer. Mm. Um, I've been going back, going back to Heaney, um, going back to Louise Glick, the last book of hers, um, Faithful and Virtuous Night, which I find um, profoundly moving and maybe an instruction for where a later life poet can go. Mm. Um, Larry Levis always, but I'm uh, uh, rereading uh, Elegy right now. Well, so. um, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today, Thanks. Jerry. Thank you so much for taking the time to yes. talk to us. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I've been speaking with the poet Jerry Doran, Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Oregon. Her latest collection of poetry, Epistle Osprey, was published in 2019. 
Doran will give a reading at the University of Oregon on November 20th, 2019, as part of the Creative Writing Program's 2019-2020 reading series. Thanks so much for watching.